Hi, you're listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dexter Fergie. Today I'll be speaking with Abraham Newman about his new book, co-written with Henry Farrell, called Of Privacy and Power, The Transatlantic Struggle Over Freedom and Security. We live in an interconnected world. People, goods, and services leap across borders like never before. Terrorist organizations like Al-Qaeda and digital platforms like Facebook have gone global. But if problems straddle different national jurisdictions, how do regulation and enforcement of policy even happen? Of Privacy and Power is a timely and wise analysis of globalization and how it has fundamentally changed governance. Digging into U.S.-European relations, Newman and Farrell show how businesses, activists, and policymakers on both sides of the Atlantic fought over and decided security and data policy. The book is also a call to action to their fellow IR scholars to study what Newman and Farrell call the international politics of information. I hope you enjoy our conversation. I'm speaking with Abraham Newman, the co-author of Privacy and Power, The Transatlantic Struggle Over Freedom and Security. Thanks for joining me today, Abraham. Thanks, Dexter. Really excited to be here. Yeah, I've long been a fan of your and uh, Henry Farrell's work. And um, I should let you know that you are the first political scientist that I've ever interviewed. (laughs) Well, I feel very honored. Great. Uh, And so, yeah, just to begin the conversation, how did you become a political scientist? You know, I, um, it was a weird story. I was my sophomore year in college, and I took a class that was about politics through the eyes of an artist. And I took that class, and then I started really getting into kind of political science. And I went to Germany. It was the, the course, the original course was about the German politics. And I went to Germany. I was studying politics there. So, you know, it's kind of, I think of it as like a Virginia Woolf path to an academic field, you trip over one thing that leads you to another thing, and then there you are. That's usually what happens. Um, the, the book deals with um, sort of like an alternative way to theorize global politics and um, international political economy. Um, and you, you and um, your co-author, um, Henry Farrell, call this the new inter- interdependence approach. Um, can you just explain to listeners why you think this is a useful way to understand the world. Totally. Um, I mean, I think the standard story in political science and international relations in general is that, um, you know, there are these states that they sit in some kind of gelatin of anarchy where they're all separated from each other, and then they butt heads with each other. And in the U.S. and European context, there was this famous book of Paradise and Power, and that's kind of, we're riffing off on the title, where um, Kagan, who was the author of that, he, he paints as, as Mars versus Venus, the U.S. versus Europe. And we were really dissatisfied with that picture uh, because we think it totally ignores basically globalization and that globalization has happened. And so what the book theoretically is trying to do is paint this alternative version of global politics in which actors are being uh, challenged by by multiple rules. If you're Apple or Facebook, you sit between US rules and European rules, and you're, you don't really know, like, what should you do in order to make your business uh, model work. And so at the same time, there are these new opportunities 
to assert your interests. And those are often not just national or domestic, they're transnational. And so we want to say that both the challenges that political actors face are not just domestic and national, and then their opportunities to advance their uh, political preferences are often also at that transnational level. So it's a much more kind of complex and dynamic version of global politics that tries to take globalization seriously. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm a historian, and so uh, I, 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 I often ask historical questions. Could you pinpoint when the world um, uh, started to look more like this, um, uh, this, this world of the new inter- interdependence approach? Yeah, I mean, we, you know, it, it's not like um, a one moment where things happen, but you have an evolution that starts after the 1970s, where you start to get the free movement of capital, capital controls go away, so finance becomes more globalized. You get um, container and global supply chains in the 1980s, where trade becomes much more globalized. And then you get communication networks that really start to take off in the 1990s. And I think all of these things, the embedding of finance, production, and communication in a global uh, structure, then shifts how politics happens. Great. Okay, so I want our listeners to come away with a good sense of this new interdependence approach. Um, And so I think um, uh, it it might be annoying, but I think we should um, go through some of the key terms. Um, And so firstly... There are two conditions of this new inter- interdependent system, um, and you've already alluded to at least one of them. So there's rule overlap and opportunity structures. Um, can you just give a quick definition for both? Sure. So um, in our mind, the new interdependence approach, it starts with the idea that um, political actors are subject to multiple rule systems, and that is the idea that we call rule overlap. And that is kind of, we're contrasting that with the kind of the standard story that international relations is a, a world of anarchy where there's no clear rules. And there, once you have this rule overlap, then actors face a lot of uncertainty and they're looking to kind of resolve that. How can they understand which rules they're supposed to follow in the international system? So the second key part of our argument is the idea of opportunity structures, which is that the way that actors can resolve the uncertainty generated by rule overlap is not just in domestic political systems. It also can happen at the transnational or international level. And there we're saying the opportunities that globalization presents for political actors um, are, are many and very uh, variegated and that they can happen at the global and international as well as the domestic. Perfect. And um, finally, um, you named three different strategies that actors can pursue. And so there is defend and extend, cross-national layering, and insulation. Um, So what do each of these mean? And why would uh, a particular set of actors choose um, one over the others? So uh, the main point of the book is to think about what are the strategies that actors use if they're in this world where there is rule overlap and there are these new opportunity structures? And the most traditional or the one that we think uh, international relations has explored already is the idea that actors try to defend and extend their current rules. And, you know, you see this all the time where um, a, a U.S. agency, let's take the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, 
they have a bunch of domestic rules about how stock exchanges function. And then they say, well, wouldn't it be easier if everybody else had these rules? And that kind of, you know, regulatory export, or sometimes people call it convergence, um, that's, that's a standard story in international relations. But what we think is now happening are kind of these two other boxes that we focus on in most of the book. Um, one of them is insulation strategies. And that's where actors, they don't have access to these global opportunity structures. They are kind of on the receiving end of these international forces. And they have to direct their policy activity, not just towards domestic policy battles, but to insulating themselves or protecting themselves from encroachments from the transnational level. And uh, and we can talk about it later, but a lot of what the privacy advocates are doing in our book is they're trying to prevent domestic rules from being undermined by these global um, policy initiatives. The uh, cross-national layering, that's an idea where uh, actors are unable to change their domestic rules. They're unsatisfied with them. They don't like, let's say, rules for the environment, rules for privacy, whatever the, the rule issue is. And so what they do is they create an alternative set of rules at the global level. And their goal is that those rules will, over time, uh, come to unseat the domestic rules that had preexisted. And the reason why they can do that is because of rule overlap, because domestic actors are facing uncertainty. They don't know what's happening with their domestic rules, and they're seeking some kind of you know, uh, more confidence in what the global rules should be. And so they latch on to these transnational rule structures that were layered on top of the domestic rules, and that then undermines support for the domestic rules over time. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's a lot of, uh, you know, like front, front-loading definitions. Um, uh, and so I think it's now a good opportunity to get into the book itself, get into the, um, the case studies. Um, and so uh, a, a part of your argument is that, um, you know, for, um, uh, at least in, in terms of security, um, for the latter half of the 20th century, Europe and the U.S. had um, relatively autonomous um, uh, um, policies. Um, but then 9-11 was an event that really um, ruptured this um, you know, mutual autonomy. Um, and so one of the things that the U.S. did in the wake of 9-11 was pass a law that required foreign air carriers to provide U.S. customs with passenger information. And um, what's really fascinating about this is that if um, a European airline were to give up this information, they'd actually actually be in violation of European privacy laws. And so can you, can you share with, with uh, our listeners this story? And in particular, can you explain why we can't frame this as just um, you know, another um, story of like a security-obsessed America versus privacy-obsessed Europe? Definitely. So... Um, it, there's a series of cases in the book where we we show how first how after 9/11 you get this what we would call rule overlap where um, the U.S. is is basically making demands globally on actors to provide information sensitive information that other countries in particular the European Union they don't want to give up and what we then show is that in many of these cases the U.S. was not able to get these deals done domestically. So they were blocked from getting the information that they wanted at home. In the case of airline passenger data, for example, um, there were efforts to 
you know, basically get the airlines to give over tons of data to the U.S. government. And these were often pushed back. And there was, you know, the ACLU, other actors were quite good at blocking U.S. efforts domestically. And so here's a case where the U.S. couldn't get what it wanted domestically, and it went globally to do it. Um, and it made foreign air carriers provide information to it. The thing that we want to stress is that Europe was not just a passive recipient of U.S. bullying. There are, you know, both in the airline passenger data case, also in financial data, there were actors in Europe that were eager and wanted to uh, be part of this transnational agreement because they also were blocked at home from getting access to a lot of data. And so by creating this cross-national layer, this transnational bargain, they were able to circumvent a lot of the barriers they faced domestically by working together transatlantically. Mm-hmm. Can you just uh, elaborate on that a little bit more? Like, What, what exactly was this transnational um, uh, uh, arrangement that they developed? And how did um, this arrangement on a transnational scale then reverberate back in Europe and started to undermine European privacy laws? Sure. So um, in the case of airline passenger data, uh, what happened was, is first there was this um, PNR agreement, which what it was called the Passenger Name Record Agreement between the US and Europe, which allowed uh, European air carriers to supply information to the US customs. But then the European officials, they basically argued domestically that you know, we're forced to comply with this American agreement and to make it really work. And it's been so successful. Now we need it at home too. And so they use that to justify a European version of the PNR agreement. And so it was a little bit of a, a fait accompli, you know, like there's this transnational agreement. Um, it's, it's working. It's great. And so now we should do it too. And then they were able to get that through as part of their um, kind of the political process of taking this transnational agreement and then domesticating it. Um, In another case, the SWIFT agreement, that's where uh, SWIFT is an organization that basically routes all global financial transactions. It sits in Europe. After 9-11, the US made a request, warrant uh, request from SWIFT to give it data on financial transactions. It led to a SWIFT agreement between the US and Europe to allow these data transfers. And in that agreement, what's so interesting is that it includes uh, a reciprocity clause in it that basically says European, the SWIFT will give this data to the U.S. authorities and European governments can make requests of the U.S. authorities for data that that they want that they've given to the U.S. authorities. And so basically European governments were blocked from getting access to much of the SWIFT data because of domestic privacy laws. But the agreement then gives the data to the U.S. authorities, and then European governments can query the U.S. government to get the data. It's a kind of like a policy laundering exercise where, you know, because they're blocked at home from getting the data because of domestic laws, they use that transnational agreement as a workaround. Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually, what's, what's, re- what's really interesting about that case is how 
uh, like national borders actually matter a lot um, because um, it's it's through the foreign that you can get domestic data. This is another case study in your book, and uh, I think it's um, worth talking about a bit more. Um, and so, yeah, so um, SWIFT, the Society for um, Worldwide Interbank Financial Telecommunications, um, uh, is, uh, uh, as you put it in the book, the digital backbone of the global financial services industry. Um, and you've already um, uh, given kind of a, a, a quick explanation of what it does. But can you, can you just relay to our listeners uh, like how important SWIFT is? Sure. So SWIFT, it's this organization that's based in Belgium. Uh, it started in the 1970s. And before that time, if banks wanted to make a transaction, they had to basically use telegraph or telephone to confirm the transaction. And what SWIFT does is it provides a secure messaging service to basically all global financial institutions. And if you make a transaction that's more than $10,000 anywhere in the world, it's routed through the SWIFT system. So in the 1970s, when SWIFT started, there were about 3,000 messages uh, a year. And now there are millions of messages a day that are routed through the system. So it has become really a, a focal institution in the global uh, financial network. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this this comes out of this book, but then also uh, um, some of your other work on um, SWIFT. But um, a really interesting feature of its history is that, um, you know, since 9-11, the U.S. has tried to weaponize um, its position within the network. Um, And uh, I would love for you to um, explain that to us. Sure. So um, in current work that I'm doing with Henry, um, we're very focused on how global economic networks can be weaponized by states. And in the case of SWIFT, it's been for what we call a, a panopticon effect. So it's basically because all of this information is routed through this central source, if you can get access to that central source, then you have you know, a viewpoint on the entire global financial system and how it's being used. And so after 9-11, the U.S. Treasury in particular, it woke up to this fact. And there's this uh, great book called Treasury's War by Juan Zarati. And he was one of the actors at the Treasury at this time. And, you know, he, he talks about SWIFT as the kind of the Rosetta Stone for the fight against terrorism. It was a way for um, U.S. actors to have information that, that nobody else could really have access to. Wonderful. And so uh, another case study in your book um, does something a little bit different. Um, and so if, um, you know, in the, the passenger name registry um, uh, case and in the SWIFT case, um, we see strategies of defend and extend and uh, cross-national layering, um, if I'm using it correctly. Um, but then in this other case, um, you examine the strategy of insulation. And so In the wake of um, the Snowden leaks, there were privacy activists within Europe um, who pursued this strategy so as to insulate Europe from these transnational pressures to share information. Uh, And a recurring character in the story is the Austrian privacy advocate Max Schrems. Um, And I think he's just um, an interesting actor to follow. So can you tell us who Max Schrems um, is and how he he and others have pursued this strategy of insulation. Definitely. So, you know, Max Schrems, he's uh, uh, both a, a lawyer and a privacy advocate. 
who is based in Austria. But what he quickly realizes is that if he wants to uh, secure privacy rights for European citizens, that he can't just play a domestic game. He starts and he's really focused on Facebook and uh, being frustrated that he feels like Facebook is, is circumventing European privacy rules. And the way that they're doing it is this agreement that the US and Europe signed back in 2000 that was called uh, the Safe Harbor Agreement. And the Safe Harbor Agreement was, you know, you have to remember that Facebook, Google, all of these companies are very new. The, the kind of internet-based economy is very new. Uh, and so in 2000, the US and Europe signed this agreement that let global companies access data from Europe as long as they pledged to meet uh, European privacy laws. And uh, Max Schrems argues you know, that, that this was basically what we would call cross-national layering, that the, the safe harbor agreement eats away at European privacy rules. These companies, they're not really following European law, and there's no direct redress for these privacy advocates to stop them because this agreement was signed. And so what we show in that part of the book is how Schrems uses the revelations that were made public by Edward Snowden uh, to attack not Facebook in Austria, but to attack the Safe Harbor Agreement. And he basically combines, he integrates claims about uh, national security concerns with uh, the Safe Harbor Agreement. And he argues that you know the Safe Harbor Agreement has become not just a channel for Facebook to operate globally, but it's a channel for the NSA to get data on European citizens. And ultimately, the European Court of Justice, which hears that case, it rules in favor of his argument that the Safe Harbor Agreement has become not just a commercial agreement to facilitate trade, but has become a kind of a backdoor for U.S. agencies to get data on European citizens. Mm-hmm. Great. Um, and so uh, something that I was really struck by reading your book was how um, – Older international organizations such as the UN um, or um, you know, NATO um, or others don't actually make much of an appearance in your book. You, you examine these other transnational arrangements and um, international organizations like SWIFT. What does um, uh, that tell us about um, this inter- interdependence that you're analyzing? And what might it say about those older international organizations? Yeah, so I think that's a great question. Um, in, in a lot of the work that Henry and I do, uh, we are focusing on types of globalization uh, issues that have come about after what we would call the kind of the, the international liberal order really got going. And so, uh, you know, when, let's say, the Bretton Woods system was created for um, kind of mon- monetary politics, at that point, there were capital controls for uh, global finance. And so those institutions weren't really built to think about a world of global finance. And so today, when you have issues about, let's say, SWIFT or secondary sanctions, or you know, any time where actors are using global finance in a strategic or, or geostrategic way, there aren't really international institutions that are there that can mediate that. Um, similarly, with the internet, you know, it was born after those institutions were created and interestingly, the United States very actively prevented the relevant institutions from being involved. So if you think about the ITU, the International Telecommunications Union, 
when the internet was born, the U.S. said, you know, we want this to be self-regulation. This shouldn't be about ITU. So either because of governance gaps, that there weren't any institutions originally, or sometimes because of actors acting strategically, the old guard international organizations are often not playing a, a key role in what we would think of as the core networks of globalization. Yeah, I mean, well, actually, I, I didn't know that about the relationship between the ITU and the internet, but that's actually really interesting because uh, in a certain sense, the U.S. is insulating its own practices from a very particular kind of global governance. But then by way of doing that, they're also extending uh, you know, their practices um, you know, beyond uh, its borders. Definitely. I mean, the the creation of ICANN, which was the major, it is the major governance institution for the internet, that was an extension, a defend and extend strategy where the U.S. had kind of a private actor governance model for the internet, and it didn't want to give that up. The Department of Commerce for a long time was the kind of the granting authority that gave ICANN its legitimacy. And so it saw that as a, a, a mechanism of control, that a one country, one vote kind of organization like the ITU would dilute U.S. Uh, power over internet governance. So I definitely think that that was a case where the U.S. was trying to defend and extend its model and push it out globally. Mm-hmm. Um, and so another interesting thread that I was following in your book is the location of where data was stored. Um, and so this actually matters a lot. From um, like a political standpoint, it matters because it calls attention to how the so-called cloud has always actually existed in particular jurisdictions. Uh, to be quite frank, it's been mostly in, um, uh, it's, it's been mostly under a U.S. jurisdiction. And so in the case of the passenger data story, um, it turns out that most foreign air carriers had stored passenger data um, on U.S. servers, and that actually gave the U.S. some leverage over um, uh, securing that information. Um, and then, um, as well, in 2018, Congress passed the U.S. Cloud Act. It gave the U.S. government access to data from U.S. companies that happened to be stored abroad. Can Can you say something about this connection between geography and data? Sure. So um, one of the things that we explore in this book, but it's also something that we take up uh, a lot in our current work on um, weaponizing interdependence is the fact that the internet uh, actually has a lot of what we would call choke points or points of centralization. Um, So everybody thinks about the internet as this really messy thing. There's this famous quote by Bill Clinton. Um, He's talking about the Chinese attempts to regulate the internet where he says, regulating the internet is like trying to nail jello to the wall. You know, it's impossible. Um, but actually, when you look at the infrastructure of um, global information, it's it has quite a few points of centralization. So uh, in the data storage area, uh, Amazon Web Services and Cloud Services, you know, it provides most of the back end of most uh, web pages. Right. If you're going to do cloud storage, it's going to be between Amazon and maybe Microsoft, you know, as two of the kind of core players. Um, but even just on the, on the actual like infrastructure of the internet, there are about 300 cables that provide most of the data communication globally. And so the thing, you know, we like to see it as this 
you know, crisscrossing of all these bits globally. But when it comes down to it, there are these very few number of choke points that that uh, where where the, all the information flows. And there's a great um, visual, a, a slide in the Snowden documents. Um, the NSA had a program that was called Storm Brew, uh, and they uh, the slide it shows you know the seven choke points of international communication, and it's it's focusing on these these fiber optic cables that go underneath the the oceans. Um, but between that and the Prism project, which also shows kind of how the NSA targeted a number of, of data services firms, it becomes clear that um, data is not randomly stored globally. It's concentrated in a very few number of places. And that geography is often a legacy of how Silicon Valley uh, emerged. And it means that in many places, the United States has a lot of power because the data isn't randomly stored globally. It's concentrated in uh, U.S. jurisdiction. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I really hope that someone has uh, borrowed the name uh, Stormbrew for like their uh, metal band or something. That, <laughs> that, that is brilliant. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Kudos yeah. to the authors of that yeah. name. Um, so, yeah, so just getting to the, the conclusion of your book, it kind of outlines um, the uh, ambitions of the book, and I might say it's an ambitious book. And so you want scholars, or you want this book to help scholars rethink privacy concerns, information, and power. Um, and so just, just to start us off, I would love to know why you think uh, IR scholars have been so slow to study um, information and the international politics and information, as you put it? You know, this is actually, it's like a huge conundrum for me. I don't really understand it. Um, but the reality is, is that in the discipline of international relations, most scholars are either very focused on traditional military concerns, uh, you know, nuclear weapons, uh, invasion, those kinds of questions of security, or in political economy, they're concerned with uh, trade and very traditional versions of trade, like tariffs and trades in goods, or uh, monetary politics. And for us, you know, it's like, like wake up, you know, like the world has been transformed. <laughs> if you look at the stock exchange today, you know, the top ten companies—they're all information technology companies. This is not the world of GE anymore. Um, and so we need to really think about in the political economy front how these companies are transforming uh, economic relations. But as we try to show in this this newer project on weaponized interdependence, that the security front is really being transformed by these companies uh, and this, these you know kind of transformations in how the world works uh, in the same ways. So if you think about Russian disinformation or the Panopticon argument that we make in, uh, uh, about SWIFT. These are cases where information flows are really being used to uh, choke countries or to uh, target adversaries. Mm-hmm. I guess you were already nearing the end of your your, your book, but like 2016 and um, you know and the subsequent um, sort of like scandals involving you know Cambridge Analytica and you know alleged Russian disinformation. Um, all these things uh, they almost kind of like wrote your book for you. <laughs> Yes. Well, I mean, we were, we, we started this project um, a long time ago. So uh, in the kind of late 2000s, and then we had two moments where we really had to kind of stop and um, 
just really assess what we were doing. One of them was when the Snowden revelations happened. And then the other was uh, during the Russian uh, disinformation and uh, Cambridge Analytica, those kinds of uh, moments. And But both of them were, you know, like they were so very uh, reaffirming for us about the importance of these issues, about the timeliness of the topic, um, and how people really need to pay more attention to this. That It's not just like a niche issue of quirky, you know, uh, I don't know, uh, data flows, but it's really at the core of what is democracy? How does democracy function? How do countries engage with each other, um, both cooperatively, but also um, in a more adversarial relationship? And that all actors, both, you know, citizens, policymakers, they need to take these issues uh, very seriously. Mm -hmm. What I really liked about the book was that um, you are including this really broad cast of characters or actors uh, you know, at a certain point, you you write that sort of states, uh, at least like the um, you know like the for, the foreign um, policy wings of states, no longer have a diplomatic monopoly. Um, that there are all these other actors that um, uh, they're also engaged in these like transnational discussions and um, negotiating and all that. Um, but it's not just that you included them; that you're also thinking about how they fit into this sort of like matrix of power. And so, like, how do I mean, like this. This has really been um, what, we're, what we've been talking about for the past half hour here. But how do globalization, information, interdependence transform the meaning of power? Yeah, and there. I mean, I think what we want to argue is that um, there are many strategies that actors have in order to assert their interests, new new opportunities that globalization opens up, and a lot of times it is about. Um, trying to resolve the contradictions that globalization creates for powerful, other powerful actors. And so because of that instability, because globalization is kind of shaking things up, it gives these, uh, you know, whether it's regulators or privacy advocates or security, the security community, they can come out and they can offer policy solutions that then resolve those frictions. And if they can do it in a uh, you know, in an elegant way, they can really transform uh, domestic rule structures and domestic politics. And so for us, power in the international system, it's not just about how many tanks you have, but it's about can you create a cross-national coalition? Can you find allies that can uh, develop these fait accomplis, these, you know, alternative rule structures that then flip the game? I would love to know how you and Henry work together. Um, so in history, um, co-writing is not as common as I, I think it's in um, political science. And so I'm just curious as to how um, you know, two people um, write a book. Yeah. So, I mean, we, so this, we've had several projects before this uh, that we've been writing on. And um, we kind of have like a little bit of a hive mind. We often like, we live in the same city, so that's lucky. And so we can meet at a coffee house and kind of map out a chapter of what, you know, what's happening in there. And then one of us will barf out, you know, as many ideas as we can. And then we toss it over to the other person and they refine it. And then sometimes we have to kind of step back and like, oh, this isn't quite going in the direction that we want it to go. Um, But it really is kind of a... Uh, we go back and forth with drafts and we, we do everything on Dropbox. So, you know, we're just changing things back and forth. Um, 
but I would call it a very, it's been a, a, like a very intellectually fulfilling uh, collaboration. You two are now working on another book and uh, we've sort of danced around the topic at ver- various points in our conversation. Um, but um, I would love to hear more about it. And so, yeah, so it's organized around the idea of weaponized inter- interdependence. It deals with some of the same uh, um, you know, organizations like SWIFT um, that we've been talking about. So, yeah, can you say a bit more? Sure. I mean, so um, both books are really about how globalization is transforming politics. And in the first book, we were kind of interested in how global networks create political opportunities for actors to forge these new coalitions, these new uh, factions. And in the, the new book, we're looking at how the networks of globalization themselves become a political tool, how they can be weaponized uh, against adversaries. And so the basic argument of the, of the book, I've kind of already outlined a little bit, is that global economic networks are often not flat. You know, we have this vision that Thomas Friedman had this, you know, metaphor, <laughs> the, the world is flat. Um, and it really, in many global networks, finance, the internet, supply chains, there are these choke points. You know, we're seeing that right now with the coronavirus and auto supply, you know, supply chains, where they're all concentrated in a few cities, and they really force, uh, they, you know, that these choke points can um, break down how the supply chain networks work, or how global finance works, or the internet. And so, what the book looks at is how states, in particular, uh, see new strategies to advance their power because of this, and in particular, the United States. And in the the piece, we identify these two channels: the panopticon effect, which is really about surveillance and how actors that have access to these key choke points uh, can glean really important information. And the other is how they can use it to deny access to adversaries, how they can box them out of those global networks. That sounds really interesting. uh, And I I look forward to reading it. Um, Just one more question. So you two are working in uh, an an area um, that is relatively new within IR. Um, What has been the response from other IR scholars um, to your work? Is it contentious? Is it like, are there questions about whether this should even be included? Or are people um, pretty uh, tolerant and uh, embracing? You know, I think it's, um, I think it's kind of a mixed bag, where, um, you know, Henry and I, we started working on these topics in the late 90s. And at that time, I think our work was seen as kind of outsider work uh, for most, you know, it wasn't fitting into a neat box of like, is this monetary policy? Is this trade policy? Is this security? What is this? That being said, Henry and I have been, you know, like we've been able to place articles in top journals. We've had books that have been published on these topics. And so we're not, I don't feel any way that like the community is really keeping us or gatekeeping us out of these topics. Uh, I do think that the world has made these things a priority and that uh, scholars, you know, are, are now realize that these are kind of core to how international affairs works. And there's a lot more interest uh, than when we started working on these topics. Uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know uh, whether that's like an entirely good thing that the world has um, yeah, forced these things uh, um, you know, into um, 
uh, veritable topics. <laughs> it's a good thing. Henry and I, Henry and I always joke that like, you know, it's good for us. I don't know if it's, yeah, exactly. you know, like, I don't know if it's good for the world, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, it's, yeah. Uh, what, what the two of you um, have been uh, focusing on is something that for sure more people, more scholars need to be focusing on. Abe, I really want to thank you again for being on the show. Uh, it's been a real pleasure to talk to you. It was great talking to you, Dexter. I really appreciate the time and also the interest you've shown for the book and the project. And I've been speaking with Abraham Newman, who alongside Henry Farrell wrote Of Privacy and Power, The Transatlantic Struggle Over Freedom and Security. And you've been listening to New Books in History, a channel with the New Books Network. Thank you.